amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Midrats. This is the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And as always, we greatly appreciate you taking time this afternoon to come join us for another edition of Midrats. If you're joining us live and you'd like to uh, jump in with the conversation, if you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that is where you will find the chat room where you can get in with some of the usual suspects. If you have some observations you'd like to make during the course of the show or if there's a question you would like for us to direct to our guests as the show moves forward, that's a great place to do it because we'll both be monitored during the course of the show. And if you got to jump off at some point and go take care of business and you want to catch up on what you missed, or if you'd like to catch up with some previous episodes you didn't catch when you could, you can get the full archive over at Blog Talk Radio, or you can go over to iTunes and Stitcher and just go ahead and subscribe to the free podcast. But for today's show, we're real excited to have on a returning guest of ours to discuss a topic that really never leaves us if anybody pays attention to uh, what's going on in the world. Because when you look at whether it's on the bloody edge of its historical territory or scattered throughout the diaspora, we continue to see the long war coming up and tapping us on the shoulder to remind us that during this waxing phase of Islamic extremist terrorism, that both inside our lifelines and working with our partners throughout the world, including those moderate Muslim nations who just want to get on with their life as well, that we need to keep an eye on development. And our returning guest for today for the full hour to discuss this and many other related issues will be Bill Rogio. Bill is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. He's also president of Public Multimedia Incorporated. That's a nonprofit news organization, and he is the founder and editor of the Long War Journal, a new site devoted to covering the war on terror. He has a little bit of uh, feet-on-the-ground experience as well. He was embedded with the U.S. and Iraqi military six times from 2005 to 2008 with the Canadian Army in Afghanistan back in 2006. Bill also served in the U.S. Army and the New Jersey National Guard from 1991 to 97. Bill, welcome back to Midrats. Thanks, Alan Eagle One. It's always a pleasure. And I, I thought in today's discussion, because I know in a lot of listeners, 
it's if not top of mind, it at least reasonably was. And let's kind of work our start in the in the center and work our way out. Obviously, uh, in in recent uh, news, the bold-faced item of uh, terrorism that we've experienced as Americans has been the uh, attack in Orlando. And as we saw in San Bernardino, these acts of terrorism are are being conducted by our own, by American citizens, uh, in this case, uh, second-generation American citizens who have, uh, for reasons um, in many ways best defined by themselves, have decided to throw in their lot with the, the international terrorism that we've seen for the for the last few decades, and when you look at the preliminary reports, a lot of which may or may not be as as spot on as you like to, again we're looking where the perpetrators weren't complete surprises. They were on our our radar screens. Um, we were looking at their actions, but they still were be able to uh, do what they wanted to do. And along those lines, and in context of the conflict we're under, Bill. Um, is this part of the new normal that citizens and policymakers, we need to just accept that this is going to be part of our existence and one of the front lines in this war um, for the foreseeable future? Well, I, I first I'd, I'd like to say I don't think we should ever accept this. Um, look, I go back to John Kerry when he was running for president in 2004 and said, we're going to have to get used to this. We're going to have to accept it. We're going to have to suck it up. But I don't think we had to. Um, I think we have had multiple opportunities to defeat these jihadist groups on the battlefields early on, and we squandered those chances in Afghanistan and Iraq particularly, um, and elsewhere in Somalia and Yemen. And I think this is what we're seeing today is, uh, first and foremost, uh, with the attacks by American citizens, um, I, I think that speaks to the, the, the strength uh, and the appeal that the uh, radical Islamists have with, with Muslims of all stripes. I mean, it, you know, you have second, like you said, second generation Americans from somewhat wealthy families or well-to-do families conducting terrorist attacks. It's unthinkable, and it, it's happening because these jihadist groups, in the case of both of them, it was the Islamic State, you know, was allowed to control territory for two years and still controls territory to this day. And, you know, on the other side of the, not the other side of the jihadist coin, but uh, Al-Qaeda still exists and it controls territory in Yemen and in Somalia and in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan via the Taliban. And, you know, and when you allow these jihadist groups to hang, hang around and show that they, they're, they're able to propagate their propaganda as well as, you know, have battlefield victories or stay in the fight, you know, that, that message they have is, is extremely appealing. And it's something, you know, that, yeah, well, now we are going to have to accept it because this is, we're, uh, we're reaping what we sowed, which was a lack of, of real commitment to fight this war. If we had finished Al-Qaeda off in Iraq and stayed there um, and, and actually, you know, showed that they weren't going to regain ground we wouldn't have the Islamic State. If we hadn't vacillated very early on in the Syrian civil war, um, you know, the Islamic, you know, th you know, that would have been a problem for the jihadist groups. If we hadn't, you know, taken a half-hearted effort in Afghanistan, you know, I could go on and on throughout the multiple theaters 
But the reality is these groups are hanging around only because we let them hang around. Well, my temptation when we talk to you, Bill, is always just to throw, uh, you know, state uh, countries' names out and have you go off. But, I mean, uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda and, and uh, the various affiliates, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at West Africa, uh, North Africa, Southeast Asia, the Philippines now is an ISIS uh, group, I guess. They've now pledged allegiance. And, and apparently sure. the... Uh, I think that there's been some discussion about how the some of the educated youth in Pakistan are now uh, joining ISIS. Is is this a direct result? Do you think of their success in hanging around? Yeah. Look, one of the all jihadist goal is to establish the caliphate and to impose Sharia law. That is the end goal for Al Qaeda and for the Islamic State. Pick a name of a group, and and that's what they what they all want. When, so Al Qaeda has always has taken a more inclusive approach as time has gone on, and said, "Look, we need to get all the entire Muslim nation behind us before we declare the caliphate." The Islamic State is a little bit more. Um, uh, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? They're, they they don't have, they're not patient, and they wanted to declare the caliphate now. Well, that appeal that's a very that's a strong appeal. The reality is, is Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, tomato, tomato, it's all the same thing at the end of the day. I mean, what was in the Philippines was previously loyal to Al-Qaeda, so they just changed names. It was a brand change. And that's really what the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria was Al-Qaeda as well. But, the, you know, the, the, the declaration of the caliphate and the fact that they've been able to hang on for two years plus, um, because remember, Fallujah, the first city that really went under, was under Islamic State in Iraq, that is, went, on, went under in January 2014. So it's been two and a half years that they've controlled territory in Iraq. So, yeah, it's that having the caliphate out there and continue to put out propaganda and effective propaganda and propaganda in English language that appeals and they can show battlefield successes. And, yeah, they're taking their lumps now and they'll, they'll have losses. But they also, al-Qaeda in Iraq, the predecessor of, of the Islamic State took its lumps from the United States and regenerated and, you know, retook territory in both Iraq and Syria after the Syrian civil war started. So this, you know, again, I can't, when you allow the Islamic State to stick around, its appeal as, look, we're the caliphate, join us, that really resonates. Look, I always look back to why did Amer why would Americans, you know, you grew up in this society, want to be, you know, be sympathetic to communists, right? Yet, you, in the, you know, during the Cold War, you had a, a, a portion of the American public, public that was sympathetic or supportive of communist efforts. And it's, it's no different with, the, with jihadist movements today. A small segment of the population is going to, you know, gravitate to that religious message. And I also think that that underdog as well plays a very strong has a very strong appeal to individuals who like the underdog. I mean, I got to admit, I, you watch what these guys do. I hate them, and you know, I give me a give me a handgun, I'll fix Guanta Guantanamo Bay tomorrow. You know, that's how much hatred I have for these individuals. But you have to respect their ability to hang in there and continue to fight against all odds against a, a global superpower. And I guess, though, that that's part of what uh, keeps the long and the long war is, you know, we talk about the Islamic State, and there has been progress against them. 
uh, recently, but all the reporting is on the tactical and the operational, and uh, you know, everybody has their nice little, little charts they need to look at. But strategically, and the best the best description that I've heard of um, about the Islamic State and their strategic center of gravity that I still think is applicable when we're discussing this conflict we're under has to do with the nature of Islam itself. And that's something that's not going to be fit, fixed ultimately on the, from the outside and isn't ultimately going to be fixed uh, coming out of the belly of a B-52 or out of the barrel of uh, the, the front of an A-10. Um, and in that light, when you look at the Muslim world and the Islamic world outside of Jordan and, at least for now, the, the military leadership uh, in Egypt, there really aren't that many substantial um, Islamic, especially Arab Islamic countries that could, we could use as that wedge to really start to chip away at what is the Islamic State's strategic center of gravity. Uh, in that light, do we just need to to wait for uh, waiting's not a plan and hope's not a plan, but there has to be something besides the Islamic State that's going to jolt some movement and shake something loose in the Islamic world, so you can really get some of these large intellectual pieces jarred loose enough that they can be moved around by the right personality be in the right place at the right time like an Ataturk? Do we really need to wait for there to be more disruption to shake some of these large blocks loose if we really want to make progress against that strategic center of gravity? Yeah, I, I would add Morocco to that list, um, other, but otherwise, sure. yeah, I mean, looking at the pickings are few and far between as the very real partners out there. I mean, um, you know, every other country is probably in a state of uh, varying degrees of civil war or, or unrest. I mean, part of the problem with waiting is when we look at, let's take Iraq or Syria, for example, when we take this backseat approach, and let me step back for real quickly. Yeah, we're really good at, you know, killing jihadists on the battlefield, but that's not the way to win this. You have to win the, bat the ideological battle, and the U.S. has failed completely to engage that battle because I always say, Religion is icky when it comes to the U.S. government. They don't want to deal with that aspect of it. I mean, just look at how President, look at look at how they edit out, redact the transcripts of Omar Mateen, the Orlando shooter's statements. Right? I mean, they want to like try and sanitize this and pretend that there isn't a real problem with Islam. There is, and if we don't speak about that, you know, how do we expect anyone to to deal with with that problem? If we're not willing to be open about it, then people can hide and pretend that there isn't a problem within, within Islam. But we do need to work with partners. We need to reach out with them. But we need to be honest to our own people, to American public and our allies as well. We can't hide and pretend that this is not – there isn't an, a, a religious component to the, this war. If you look at what – any of these jihadist groups, the most important individuals in these groups aren't – their military leaders or their bomb makers or their emirs. It's the religious leaders. It's the leaders who are giving the religious edicts or, um, or fat, what are called fatwas in order to carry out a suicide attack or to attack civilians or do whatever it's doing. It all generates 
from their interpretation of Islam, and we have to recognize that. We can't just pretend that these guys are, oh, they're just power-hungry madmen who, you know, hate homosexuals, right, and, and, or, and don't like women. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a lot deeper than that, and they're telling us this all the time. I wrote something up. Uh, there's a statement. Did a tal- uh, the Taliban issued a statement um, about the targeting of its leadership, right? We killed, we killed the last Taliban emir, Mullah Mansour, in a drone strike in Pakistan. And the Taliban said, and now look, you've got to understand, yes, this is propaganda. But a lot of times there's a lot of truth in what they say because when you watch how they act and you put it and made it to their propaganda, there's a lot of truth to it. And they basically they said flat out, we do not understand the psycho- psychology or motivations of the Taliban. We could kill their leaders. They'll just replace them because it isn't about the individual. It's about their overall mission. And we, don't, we have failed to understand the psychology of the Taliban. We failed to understand or, or address the, the, the root causes, the real root causes of these various jihadist groups, and that's why we're in a state today. I mean, look, prior to 9-11 – or just or on 9/11, right? You had jihad. You know, the Taliban controlled most of Afghanistan. Al Qaeda had bases there. You had some little stuff going on in Pakistan. Some, you know, and and then you know some small things, right? Very little. Today, you look at how it's exploded, and you can't look. No matter even no matter how the Islamic State has taken a beating in Iraq and Syria, the jihadist movement overall is in a far better position today. They have bases in Iraq and in Syria and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Yemen and Somalia and Mali and North Africa and Libya. And I could just, you know, in the, in the Philippines and Indonesia, we could just go down the list of places where they're active and running training camps. You can't tell me that we're, we're getting to the root cause when they've spread to that. You can't tell me we're addressing the ideology that we've had an effect on them when all we're doing is targeting militarily. And we're failing to um, to actually deal with again with that root cause. And now, as far as like, if we want to take a back seat on this, what you're having, what's happening in Iraq and in Syria now? So you have the jihadists on one side, and now you have Iran on the other, which is the other side of the jihadist coin, the Shia side of the jihadist coin. They're is spreading their influence within Iran and Syria. These Shia militia groups that are being formed, that are formed in inside of Iraq and inside of Syria, particularly in Iraq. These militia groups are saying, look, we want to be the IRGC of Iraq or the Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the, you know, which is Iran's jihadist enforcement group, right? They basically run the government and run the military and everything. That's what, so we're, we're seeing a spread from there as well, not just the Sunni side, but the Shia side. And then all that does is reinforce uh, perce- uh, Sunni perceptions that the Iranians, that they're coming to get us and and so that's just a, a recruiting tool as well. So we have few and far between partners that are few and far between. We're not even good at supporting them. And U.S. government has been critical of C- of of Sisi, the the head of the, the president of Egypt. You know, it's it's and and our Iraq partner is basically a vassal of Iran now. It's this is it's as dark as it's been probably since 9/11. Um, you know, people always look at it and say, well, have the attacks happened here? And, you know, we haven't had many attacks in the United States or whatnot. But the infrastructure, the jihadist infrastructure on both the Sunni side and the Shia side has grown, has exploded exponentially 
since 9-11 and since we went into Afghanistan. Well, I've had an interesting week and in that I started reading uh, uh, ISIS Apocalypse by McCants and Bob Gates' book, Duty. Um, Gates, is, Gates is mad because he didn't think we, uh, for a long time, didn't take the war in Iraq seriously, apparently, and that the people in the Pentagon were more interested in, in uh, building up their personal uh, or uh, service uh, empires and not really much dealing much with the, for the troops on the ground. And, and, and McCance's book, uh, you know, he talks about the apocalyptic nature that the, the, the ISIS view is that this is all setting up Armageddon, that there's going to be this, this battle between the antichrist and, and, uh, and the Islamic faithful. Um, how, you know, with, since we've been pussyfooting around is, is, is the current administration uh, waiting to just leave office and dump this in the lap of whoever comes next? And are, is the answer to put more more troops on the U.S. troops on the ground and and in all these spots and you know just whack as many of these guys as we can? Or is there is there some other solution to this uh, this problem we have? Yeah. Well, first, I couldn't agree more with Gates. Um, yeah, I, I think the the actions of the services and our lead top leadership uh, from General Petraeus on down. They have failed us immensely. Um, look, I mean, look, look at Petraeus, right? He was the architect of the surge in Iraq, and yet he was mum when the Obama administration pulled out of Iraq. He was the architect of the surge in Afghanistan. He rolled over when Obama said we're going to take him out of Afghanistan and took the CIA director. So thanks, thanks a lot, General Petraeus. You really showed leadership to us. And I could sit there and criticize every other general that, that has been in the head of ISAF and, you know, whatever. But uh, second, as far as McCance's book goes, look, that's always been, that's been, an, it's not anything new to the Islamic State. I, I never understood, um, there, I think there's been a lot of, like, uh, misdirection when it comes to Islamic State, as if it's something new and unique. And look, Al-Qaeda controlled territory in Iraq, in Yemen, in Somalia, in, uh, well, via the Taliban, Afghanistan, Pakistan, long before the Islamic State was a, you know, a glimmer in Baghdadi's eye. So, and they've had this apocalyptic vision as well. That's always, they've always felt, as a matter of fact, one of the propaganda tools of, the Islam, of, of Al-Qaeda has been, look, if we defeat them in the Khorasan, apparently there's some, I'm, I don't consider myself a scholar on the Quran, but there's apparently scripture that says, if we de- defeat them in the Khorasan, which is Afghanistan, Pakistan, then we take the war to the Levant. Well, boy, that looks like it's happening today, doesn't it? And so that's why they've always put a lot of emphasis on fighting in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that apocalyptic vision has always been out there. And as far as the Obama administration, yeah, I think they've mailed it in at this point. They're invested in the um, narrative that al-Qaeda has been defeated and we're rolling back the Islamic State and all is well. And, um, yeah, you know, we've got six, eight months left and uh, they're out of office. And when it goes wrong, they'll just blame someone else, just as they did. They blamed everyone before them. They'll blame everyone after them. This administration has taken no responsibility for its failures in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya, um, Syria, you name it. They they failed there. Very good at killing individual leaders. Very, very good at targeting individual leaders, but like the Taliban said, so what? We'll replace them, and they have. I think I think you're spot on. They've already signaled that um, that's that's something the next president will have to deal with. That's 
to say it's disappointing is an understatement, and uh, I, I think I think history will, will judge them as as most people think they will. But you brought up something really interesting. We talked about killing the leader. Um, highly suspicious theory that goes back to you know, revolution, military affairs, and and all the hundred pound head people that uh, forget what McNamara. <laughs> was supposed to teach us, and they were, they were smarter than the, the latest group of brilliant people. But anyway, that whole theory of capitation, if we kill enough leaders, we'll, we'll, we'll break it up when actually the, the data tells a very different story that when you kill an experienced and controlled leader, he's replaced by a younger guy who feels he needs to actually prove himself and uh, does additional damage. But you had that whole mentality that you know, if we had another decade of, rule, uh, a decade of war, they would make us love it of killing all the leaders will solve all your problems, combined with the technology fetish of if we have big data, if we have enough drones to block out the sky so that their crops die from lack of sunlight, to all we need is just more people on the floor with more sensors and and everybody from an O3 up to the chairman being able to look at the same video feed will be able to solve the problem. You, You combine that intellectual habit that we were trying to break off and we uh, someday either one we're gonna have to try to get him back on but we had one of one of the guys i greatly respect on we only had one for 30 minutes two years ago retired lieutenant general van riper and, and the people that focus more on knowing the human dimension of that and you've mentioned some of the uniform leaders that as you described have kind of failed us Still wearing the uniform, do you see somebody out there in the uniform service, in the open, in the marketplace of ideas that can point the conversation in a different way besides this fetish on technology and multi-billion dollar contracts uh, worked over tables on Pentagon City towards something that could actually give us the effects that we need as the Islamic extremists continue in many regards, to go from victory to victory, because I'll, I'll go back to Orlando, say what you want to, but that operation was a victory for them in so many ways. Absolutely, yeah, I couldn't agree more. But I, I couldn't agree with the, the way you said that, the fetish, this fetish we have with technology. I mean, you are spot on. I've been arguing this for years. I mean, look, I was the first person to start tracking the drone strikes, which automatically made people think I was the drone strike biggest supporter out there well no that's not true one of the things i was trying to explain is oh thanks one of the things i was you know that we look at is yeah we're killing them but is it really stopping their growth and a lot of times by the way the leadership is being replaced by other old leaders some of these guys that have replaced top leaders look zawahiri is the head of al-qaeda now he was al-qaeda alongside with osama bin laden he's still alive and there are guys like him that have been in this game for 30 or 40 years that are still there. We don't even know their names until we find out that they're dead or they issue a eulogy of them. When I say we, the general public doesn't, you know, they're not household names, but they're very important people behind the scenes. And um, that's something that's really, you know, we can't, we're not wrapping our head around this. We're treating this, we're treating our enemy like it's a cellular terrorist organization. And if we kill off, chop off the heads of a couple places, the cells 
fall apart. It's not. They're network global insurgency. And they have redundancies that allow them to replace their leaders. For every, you know, for every Abu Yahya al-Libi, well, he had three deputies that served under him. We know this because we saw the bin Laden document. And when you look at two of the three of his deputies are still alive out there. We know their names, and they're not dead. And they've been in, in the game for 20 years. They don't, so we kill them, right? Where are our leaders, where are our military leaders or our political leaders since 9-11? George Bush, he retired, he's no longer president. General Franks, General Petraeus, I could go down the line, right? They're no, they retire. These guys don't retire, they die. They fight jihad till, the, till, the, till they either die in natural causes or we kill them in a drone strike or a raid or something like that. And typically they put in 30, 40 good years of jihad. Think about that. That is, you know, so they're fighting to the end, and then they have guys that are on the bench that have been waiting 20 years to take over that job, or they may just go somewhere else in the organization and take on another responsibility and become more educated and more important to the organization. As far as you, you would ask me two questions. I'm going to address them really quickly. First, about the leader. The lead, do we have a, a leader out there that's public? I, if they're out there, I don't know who it is. I haven't seen anyone speak intelligently about this issue of, of fighting jihadist organizations. Everyone seems to be enamored with big contracts and drones and intelligence. And you know, I mean, you would have thought we would have lost, learned our lesson um, after the Vietnam War and the McNamarization. I'll make that word up if it doesn't exist. The, um, you know, that's exactly what we've been doing for the last 10 years. We're acting like we can, we can make a science out of this, and we don't have any we're, – we're losing our capacity. One of our biggest failures with withdrawing from Iraq in 2011, right, 10-11, when we withdrew, we also withdrew our entire intelligence network that dealt with the Sunni tribes, and those tribes operated across the border in Syria, we may actually have been able to identify good rebel groups to work with. But we said, ah, we don't need that stuff, right? But, like, you know, it's, we need that hands-on that hands -on work, that dirty work that needs to be done. It's, dis it's discounted for uh, ISR and drones and databases and, and, you know, data modeling and all this other crap at the end of the day doesn't, you know, helps kill individual leaders but doesn't really take these groups down. And, and the second thing, you did ask me about strategy. You know, what do we do? I wish, I, I, I always say this, we can't come up with a strategy until we could clearly define the nature of the threat. And 11 years after 9-11, we haven't done that yet. We can't even say what is Al-Qaeda. Um, we can't even honestly say, I mean, these policymakers, one of the big reasons why the Islamic State is boosted by a lot of counterterrorism and individuals in counterterrorism and within the administration, because then they don't have to admit that they failed in defeating al-Qaeda, because all the Islamic State was was al-Qaeda in Iraq, and that, that was ejected actually by al-Qaeda because of the leadership dispute. So we could say, oh, the Islamic State's something new and different. We can't even define what, who the enemy is. We can't say what, whether, you know, the importance of their ideology. Until we do those things, until we actually are honest about these things, we can't come up. I, so I would advise putting no troops in, on the ground in any places that could get them killed because they're getting killed, you know, basically for us trying to keep our head above water. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've always thought, look, and, and this is tough for me to say, 
in Afghanistan, right back, I remember back in 2009, 10, 11, um, particularly in Kunar province, you, you know, uh, you saw everybody listening probably aware of Restrepo, the movie Restrepo, and, you know, the fighting that was going on in the valleys in Kunar. You know, sometimes an infantryman has to eat it, right, in for the greater good. And that was a really bloody, you know, fighting in remote outposts against an enemy that tried to overwhelm them. You know, that's okay if the greater mission, if, if, it, if it's helping you achieve success. And I say that as a former infantryman who could have been one of those guys in the mountains, you know, if you're, and, and who could have died there, right? I mean, if, if, there's a, if the strategy is sound, if we're, we're being honest about the nature of the threat and we, we know where we're going, then, yeah, you make those sacrifices. But right now, I'm not sure we're making sacrifices for the right reasons. We're basically just trying to, what a general in Afghanistan said after a while, and this is why we withdrew from Kunar and Norstan and other areas, they said, well, we'll just mow the grass. Basically, we'll kill jihadists, and then they'll grow back up, and then we'll just go back in and kill them again. But it doesn't really get you anywhere, particularly when you, when you, uh, when you pull the lawnmower out of the theater, and then they could just keep growing, and they grow wild. Um, yeah, I was. My comment was going to be that it seems to me that the re, the reliance on technology and drones that we perceive is because that's all that's being allowed. I mean, you know, the the current administration strategy seems to be we're going to bomb them, we're going to you know shoot them with missiles, we're going to, but we really don't want to commit any ground troops because you know that's going to put people at risk and it would be bad and and all that stuff. And, you know, it's just a holding action. I mean, I am so frustrated with this because yeah. I cannot even imagine that they, that, that there is a real strategy here other than I'm going to pass this buck on as fast as I can, which is, as you said, you know, seven months from now I'm gone. So it'll be the other guy's problem. Uh, but I always go back to Farron back in this kind, this kind of war, whatever the book is, you know, you can fly over it, you can bomb it, you can do all this, but you're not going to keep it and hold it unless you put boots on the ground. And I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking that maybe we really need this, uh, I guess, uh, um, the guy that wrote the Pentagon's new map, you know, he called it the Leviathan force. So we, we put in a force on the ground to, to fight these guys uh, wherever they are. And then, you know, bring in the admin force to not just, you know, gloss over and build shiny new schools and stuff and really give the to help the people in these countries out but uh without doing that i all we're doing is is as you said you know mowing the grass that that just doesn't make much sense to me yeah i mean look barnett who's the author of uh, pentagon's new map i mean he basically was describing counterinsurgency right and we saw it work in iraq we did see it work and we saw it work to a limited effect in afghanistan but what we failed to have is um, the long-term commitment. And, look, I always go back. If there is one phrase that is attributed to jihadists that I think explains this entire dilemma that we face, it's, it's, from the, it's attributed to the Taliban. And they say that this is them talking. The West has all the clocks, but we have all the time. And... To me, that's just summarizing in a nutshell. West has the tools, and the, we have the fighter planes, and the drones, and the technology, and the this and the that. They're going to wait us out. They know they can wait us out. And we are failing to fight this war 
over the long term. So we can we can just achieve tactical success, but we're not getting that strategic effect because we're not backing that tactical success up with doing the hard work, which is sticking around. Hey, you know, I can almost eight years ago in the Still Garden in Kabul, right outside HQI staff. One thing we were talking about over cigars is um, we can do this if our politicians and our people have strategic patience, but if they don't have the strategic patience, we're just wasting, we're wasting our time. And of course that strategic patience, I say, in my opinion, and I reserve the right to be be proven wrong. uh, You can firmly place that flag in December of 2009 with uh, President Obama's speech at West Point. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you, because I don't think that, the American public has the leaders right now, and I don't see anybody in line who's going to have the desire to, to lead and try to get us back to a point of strategic patience. And so that lot, in, in that line, you have to look around. And when you look at from a theory point of view, you know, we have our own problem with the water at which the homegrown terrorists swim in here. The Russians have an order of magnitude larger problem with homegrown terrorists, not just in the Caucasus, but elsewhere. And, of course, they're active players um, working to shore up their, their buddy, Mr. Assad, in, in Syria. But if you're looking strictly in, in theory and discounting national attitudes, it would seem that we're missing opportunities with partner with Russia to at least help us mow the grass or to use their lawnmower. We've taken hours out, but we're just not doing that. And I'm curious from your point of view, is that because of our fault and our approach to Russia, or is Russia somebody that really doesn't want to partner with anyone and they'll do their thing, and from their point of view, everybody else can pack sand? Are the Russians partnerable? Um, and it's a wasted opportunity, or is this something that we we should pursue if we ever have the wisdom to do it? Ideally, they would have been partnerable. Uh, they could have been a partner. I think that, that that time is long past. And, you know, with actions in Georgia and Ukraine and threatening, you know, the threats against Europeans and the support of Assad, you know, I, I think – the the interests are so divergent between the West and Russia, and I think it's a real shame. Um, look, you, you know, you can't have perfect partners, and Russia certainly wouldn't be a perfect partner, but they could have been an adequate partner and an effective partner. Um, I, it's hard for me, since I'm not uh, knee-deep in studying Russia and, and, and Russian attitudes, um, I think there's been failures on both sides. Um, look, I think, in my opinion, Russia's play, you know, Putin has played a, uh, you know, an all sort of an all or winner take all game when it comes, no matter what he plays, game he plays. But I also think that we failed to assuage Russians, Russia's fears with respect to, to countries joining NATO and the European Union, and you know that sort of made them believe that they had to act in the way they did in the case with Georgia. I'm not justifying it by any means, and Vladimir Putin is despicable, and, you know, he's invaded two countries and balkanized them, and I don't think he's anywhere near done. 
And maybe he would have done this no matter what we have done. I always say you can't build a time machine and, and, uh, and find out. But I think it's possible that we, you know, if that was possible, it was possible in the early to mid-2000s. But really, once Georgia happened, that was, that, the, the chances of that just sort of went out the window. I keep going back to how seriously the administration takes what is going on in the uh, in this even in the homegrown terrorist thing. When the Attorney General of the United States says the most effective um, weapon in fighting uh, Islamic terrorism is love, uh, my head almost exploded. I mean, I I cannot believe that that any serious adult who understands how these things are going. Uh, can make such a statement. Is there any indication that you've seen, Bill, that, that these people are really serious at all about about uh, dealing with Islamic terrorism or jihadists? I, you know, it's we're seven years plus into this, and I haven't seen any indication. Look, they're serious about killing individuals. Um, you know, but that but that's it. They've treated a tactic as strategy. They failed to define the nature of the enemy, the true nature of the enemy. And I think this, this administration has gone out of their way to make excuses at times for the enemy or, or excuses for their, um, you know, for the problems within Islam. I mean, you know, look, I am sympathetic. I can understand that you don't want to portray this as a war with Islam. But, look, I think any Muslim who you're going to be able to work with actually gets that. I mean, one of the things I learned in my time with doing embedding in Iraq particularly was there were a lot of individuals, Iraqis, a lot, every Iraqi soldier, officer I ran into hated the Islamic State. Or, I'm sorry, hated Al-Qaeda in Iraq. This was back before the Islamic State, back in, you know, early 2008 and before. And, you know, had a relatively favorable view of America, and they never felt that we were at war with Islam. As a matter of fact, they embraced the fact that we supported them against, against a, a horrific enemy. So, to me, it's not a hard sell. Nobody seemed offended that I, I ran into anyway. Anyone who's going to be offended by that or is going to make an issue out of that probably isn't going to understand or be sympathetic to us anyway. That's a very good point, especially on the um, on the home front, so to speak, from the American point of view. Uh, I got through reading uh, Ayan Hirshi Ali's latest book, Heretic, and that that's part of the po- things that she touches on is part of the problem that we have in the West is our, our information disseminating bodies, i.e., the press, uh, tend to go for um, the view of Islam to the exactly wrong people in America. It's the Council on American yep. Islamic Relations Care, and there are other organizations as well. They go to those that have connections to uh, unindicted co- co-conspirators like the Muslim Brotherhood, et cetera, and so forth, as opposed to building up the neighbors that we have and that we all live around, that we work around, that we serve around, that we have fought with who happen to be Muslims, um, that those people and their voices are drowned out for whatever reason 
the information controlling bodies always want to go to those that represent, apologize, and make excuses for the most radical ones. When there are Dr. Zudi Jasser, I believe is how you pronounce the name, uh, is a perfect example here in the U.S. There are Muslims who are Americans or, or Jordanians or Egyptians who do get it, but they don't get the opportunity to show that face of modern Islam out there, which, again, plays into what we talked about briefly earlier, which is that strategic center of gravity in this war. And that's part of our internal problem. And, and Bill, maybe you've had a chance to, to see what direction the needle is, has moved, if at all. But I haven't seen much much progress there in the last 15 years when the days after 9-11, every other day you had people from CARE on TV. Are we doing anything better nowadays to helping to give those moderate, modern Muslim voices um, an extra minute or two of airtime? No. As a matter of fact, I think it's gotten worse. CARE has gotten even more influential I mean, look, even Fox News goes to care. Uh, um, even if they treat them in a, in, a, in a negative light, they're put on as being legitimate representatives. All the media organizations do it. And it's, you know, and, and the U.S. government is, is again, it, it all goes back to, stems to me, with an ability to recognize the true nature of the enemy. The, there is no way in hell that care cares about anything but, promote, you know, but giving cover to jihadists. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. I mean, I, I, I'm on their mailing list, so I see what happens immediately after an Omar Mateen attack, and they try and throw, oh, well, it wasn't an act of Islam. It wasn't a, you know, this wasn't, you know, and they, they, they go into this mode, and I can predict what their press releases are going to look like, and it's very effective. They're very effective at it. they got branches across the country. They've gotten better at it, and no, I don't think the U.S. government does anything to, to, to attempt to promote moderate Muslims. And I know they exist. I, I, I've witnessed this in the, the Somali community particularly. I've heard complaint after complaint from individuals who have been like, you know, they don't come to us. Nobody's coming to us. They're going to, these, they're going to the wrong people. In, in the communities, they, you know, they're doing it. The U.S. government is going to the wrong groups, and they just – they don't know who they're dealing with. And – um, it's inexcusable 15 years after 9-11. How do we, how do we get those groups to help us fight uh, this threat to all humanity? How, how do we get those people signed up? That one's probably above my pay grade. <laughs> I admit anyway. we're getting into the, the ideological struggle. And I wish I had answers there. I mean, I, it's, it's a lot like policy. It's very complicated. And, I, 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 you know, I'm looking at the military aspect of this, uh, of the war. And what's particularly – my focus tends to be what's going on overseas, where the training camps are, who the leadership is, what's the status in countries, things of that nature. So I'm not deeply vested in, you know, how could we fight this ideological struggle – but we need to listen to people like um, uh, Hersey. Uh, I always get her name, or Hersey Ali, right? We need to listen to people like her. Instead, Council of American Relations puts out a list, and the, the, uh, uh, they call them Islamophobes. 
because they they dare to speak up against what um, radical Islamists are doing because they dare to speak the truth and and that's why promoting groups like CARE and taking their studies that they do with Berkeley seriously is just extremely dangerous and it just it ha- it, all it does is legitimize these groups further and further marginalizes people that really want to help us we need to shut off CARE and, and Muslim Brotherhood these groups should have no voice in our media they should have no voice within our government and, you know, the individuals who truly do want to help us, they should be getting all of the, the support that we could give them. How to make that happen, I don't have the answer. Yeah, and if anybody really wants to get a migraine over how that's progressing, just look at the penetration they've had of not just the Southern Poverty Law Center, but also look what they've done yep. to the ACLU the last 10 years. But look, Let's go back to your area of expertise, and I want to tap into one of my little areas of academic study, and that has to do with economics and demographics and how they uh, come together. And everybody likes to talk about Russia and China, but that's not my long view personally. I think what's fascinating is what we're going to see in sub-Saharan Africa in the course of the next 20, 30 years. When you look at the demographics there combined with the inability to get a footing on Um, uh, economic performance on a per capita basis, we're already seeing that in part of the migration flows to Europe and all of that's creating. But also in sub-Saharan Africa is one of those bleeding edges of Islam that goes from the the Somali-Kenya border and goes all the way across through Nigeria and a few other hot spots here and there. And we've seen some of them try to affiliate with ISIS and they're waxing and waning in different areas. What is your view on what's happened in sub-Saharan Africa? And should that, uh, of all the things we're ignoring, should we ignore that a little less coming down the road? Um, I think there's been, from the government standpoint, I think there's a greater recognition of the threat. But at the end of the day, I think the priorities are less, when it comes to the for, for the United States, that is, I think for countries like France, particularly, they really recognize the problems that are emanating from places like Mali. I mean, France, ever since uh, it invaded uh, Mali, what in 2012, because uh, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and N Sardine, which is just basically a front for AQIM and um, some other jihadist groups, they took over about half of Mali. So the French went in and basically, you know, kicked them out of most of their strongholds, but these groups are still active there. I think the the actual U.S. government recognizes the threat but isn't doing a whole hell of a lot to alleviate the problem. And the the reason is the problem has just expanded so greatly. We have military, U.S. military intervention and CIA interventions in Yemen, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, drone strikes in Pakistan, which have reduced over time but still occur, Iraq, Syria. So um, I have a profane way of saying, which I won't repeat on the air, but basically it's blank Africa, and no one really cares at the end of the day because we got bigger fish to fry. And while that happens, um, these jihadist groups are just propagating, not just the Islamic State, but Al-Qaeda is very strong in Libya, in Mali, in Somalia, 
the Shabab, which is its affiliate there, or, or branches, I more prefer to call them. Um, you know, Egypt, both Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. So, you know, then you have problems occurring in Niger and, and you know, other countries, even like countries like Burkina Faso and whatnot, they're experiencing, Mauritania are experiencing terrorist attacks and there's safe havens in those areas. So that problem has really spread significantly, I would say, since about 2000, uh, mid-2000s, and we're not gaining any ground there. It's just getting worse. And there's only so much, so much U.S. resources that exist, and Africa just isn't getting the lion's share. I can understand why. I mean, the military has been cut, and it's being spread thin, and it's, uh, you know, as you said, we're basically fighting holding actions in, in all these countries, and it's hard to add additional countries to, to it. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by one of the uh, articles on the Long War Journal site where I think one of your interns, I can't remember who it was, but there have been over 100 Probably attacks. Probably Caleb if it was if it's Africa, yeah. Yeah, over 100 attacks in, Afri- in West Africa um, since, I mean, just since the start of 2016. You know, and that includes everything from IMDs And I think that was to, just uh, Mali. Well, it was mostly Mali. I think he did mention Burkina Faso and, and yeah, a, right, a couple right. other places. And, and so – and if you look at this, I mean, Mali is one of the is the most dangerous country for UN peacekeepers. More UN peacekeepers have been killed in a small desert country of Mali than anywhere else in, across the globe. And you think about that. I mean, think of where places where the UN is in, as an intervention. I think it just speaks uh, volumes about how how these jihadist groups continue to operate. Again, with the French presence, with with UN peacekeepers involved. You have this, you know, expanding problem there. Yeah, you're you're correct. It was in Mali and in neighboring areas. So, uh, I apologize for jumping you there. A good no friend arm. of mine. No foul. <laughs> a good friend of mine in 2002 uh, took off with a a small select group of people to the Philippines to help them back in 2002 to address some of their Islamic issues to the south. And here we find ourselves. Uh, a good 14 years later, and uh, the Philippine issue is, is, I believe one would describe it as waxing, um, and of course the, the issue with the um, Islamic community in the southern part of the Philippines um, goes back to the invention of the uh, 45 ACP <laughs> pistol and all that good stuff. Yeah. But that is one of the areas in Southeast Asia uh, with Thailand, I, I believe, that we do see uh, a significant Islamic terrorist issue. Uh, how are we looking at the Philippines, and would you describe that as contained? And with their new elections, with their populist president, do you think there will be any change in what some of their approaches will be? Um, I can't speak to the issue with the elections. I'm not familiar enough with the the with the, the incoming government to know how they'll handle it. But historically – I would say that they've um, had some success against the – so Abu Sayyaf group was an al-Qaeda, basically an al-Qaeda affiliate in, in the Philippines. It has now – and other other uh, Islamist groups, have they've, they've become the Islamic State there. I'd say the insurgency has been weakened over time, but, you know, the root causes are still there. The ideology – the, the breeding grounds for 
jihadists still exist in the Philippines. I was also Indonesia, Jemaya Islamia, which basically split in two. Half it went to Islamic State, half is still loyal to Al-Qaeda. These groups have taken their lumps over time. I mean, if there's anything where you could say success stories that have largely been carried out by Muslim governments, you know, those, those two would be good, two, two good ones to point to. Um, yet those problems still persist. And, you know, I think it gets down to, you know, to me it all goes back to the failure to address the, the ideology over time. Uh, the, they, they remain appealing to a certain segment of the Muslim population. And until you could reduce or take away that appeal, until you could discredit it, um, it's going to continue to uh, it's going to continue to fester. And you know, look, a lot of these groups, I think they they were beaten down pretty good at the beginning of uh, they say 2010, 11, 12. Um, Detachment 88 in Indonesia did a really good job at targeting Jemaah Islamiyah's leadership. But then when they stick prisoners, put the lead, top leaders in jail, they're still preaching to people. They're still able to get statements out. So they still, like, they, they haven't figured out how to shut these people off from society and discredit their ideas. They, and so that, so it could just, it, again, it just continues to fester because, again, we're, they're not, we're not, they're not getting to the real root causes of these problems. And it's not poverty and it's not education and, it, you know, not those, those things that a lot of people like to repeat because it was, terrorism was related to poverty or education, then, you know, there's a lot of countries that should be running suicide bombers up against us. Well, being a, being a couple of old Navy guys, we should probably mention that, that one of the questions about the Philippines is the, is the ability of the uh, now Islamic state supporting groups to kidnap sailors off ships passing through the area. And, uh, um, hold them for ransom as a, I guess as a, as a funding mechanism. Um, it, it, you know, is that an issue that, that, uh, you know, I know that Indonesia and, and Singapore and maybe Malaysia too have gotten together and now talking about some safe routes for shipping through that area. Is there, is, is, is there something that the U S should be doing in that area that we're not currently doing? Um, so look, it, it, this the the issue of piracy and its intersection with jihadism has been around for a long time. Sabu Sayyaf group is, was doing it for a long time. Jemmy is Islamia was doing it all long before the Islamic State. Shabab in Somalia, which is you know again Al Qaeda's branch there. I mean we remember the problems just with just a couple of years ago that they were taking over ship after ship and the piracy was just out of control. I think the U.S. and and Western countries put together a good um, uh, task force to deal with that. And I think it was largely successful. You've seen those types of attacks and, and that revenue-generating stream dry up. I haven't seen a lot of it in, in Indonesia and the Philippines of late. Um, and, again, I'm probably – I'd be talking out of turn if I, I, I don't know the particulars of who was doing what there. But I think a lid's being kept on that problem. A lot of these groups tend to, particularly in Indonesia and the Philippines, hostage-taking is very big. It's not, not anything different than in Africa or any other country. Hostage-taking really is, is 
the is a prime revenue generator more so than piracy that I've seen in Indonesia or or in the Philippines. Um, but perhaps one of your listeners may may know far far more than I do on that. And Bill, uh, after another very quick hour, we're going to come in towards the, the end of the show. Um, and we mentioned earlier, you know, the Long War Journal is a great place for people to see what, what you and your, your band of merry men and women are up to. But uh, what are people, uh, where can people go uh, to keep an eye on the things that uh, you're focused on? And what are you working on right now that we can look forward to seeing here in the near future? Yes, one of the things that um, I've been working We want to put together a page on this and explain how this is a real a threat that to me, even by a lot of the Iran watchers, are kind of don't really understand, in my opinion. Look, I, 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 if you think of it this way, look at the problem that Iran caused by creating and establishing Hezbollah in a country of three million people. Right, I'm sorry, about four and a half million people within, in, in Lebanon, right? That's where Hezbollah is based. Now you have a country of Iraq with about 34 million people. So you have a recruiting pool 10 times that's estimated at 60% Shia, and you have these militias growing up. Think of the problem, you know, Iran, one of its biggest enemies is Israel. I don't think people really get when this all shakes out where that you're going to have another group like that's going to be like Hezbollah on steroids. And... I real and so we're we're trying to document this and explain how this is you know how it's being put together what Iran's hand is but just not just Iraq but you also have Syria as well but to a lesser degree and how this um, how this can can impact us so we're we've been working pretty hard on that we're gonna have some maps and primers on the groups and then you know um, some of their propaganda it's pretty scary I mean it's pretty frustrating too when you see these Iranian militias driving U.S. M1 tanks and Humvees and using um, American artillery pieces and carrying M16s. We are we have uh, our abandonment of Iraq really has um, given these groups and and given Iran all the space that it's needed to to um, to uh, basically uh, become the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the prime uh, mover and shaker in Iraq and and that is going to have regional and global implications that nobody's really thought through. Yeah, that is that is amazing, and everybody should take a minute and let that soak in because it is very, very sobering. And, Bill, as always, uh, though you're not quite a pick-me-up, it's always a, a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, I, I think it should give our listeners a lot lot to ponder as we, uh, we go forward to 2016. And I look forward to next opportunity to talk to you. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time and the generous time, and you have a great summer, and thanks again. Look forward to joining you again. Thanks a lot, yes, sir. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for another edition of Midrats. Until next time, cheers. Oh.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 